the Underdog Podcast from SB Nation and Underdog Dynasty. Welcome to another edition of the Conference USA Underdog Podcast on UnderdogDynasty.com, SB Nation's home for G5 football, of course. Uh, if you just listened to the most recent episode, you heard uh, Evan Dudley of AL.com dive into the UAB Blazers with us. Have plenty more episodes in that vein coming down the pipeline. Uh, but for this week, we're just kind of catching up with each other and diving into some uh, some news from around Conference USA and debating a few other league-related and uh, just kind of G5 football-related topics. So, uh, Joe Londrigan, happy with, to uh, be back with you once again as I stutter and just sound like complete crap, as always. Uh, Eric Henry, joining me once again. How are you, bud? Doing all right, my man. Living the dream and happy to have an episode where it's just the two of us. You know, we get a little bonding time, some bro time, get to know each other a little bit better. So cannot complain. Always down to bro down. I dig it. Man, I am I am so sleep deprived today. My I, I told you, so our cat is just on a hot streak of uh getting on my nerves. I, I tweeted it yesterday, but um had my first of what I'm sure will be many moments of putting on my shoe only to realize there was, there was cat poop in it. Uh, and then last night for whatever reason, she was just like, if you've ever heard someone like get stabbed, just the guttural like despair, that's like the noise she was making all night. And that's like, like I don't think myself or my girlfriend got any sleep. So if I'm off my game a little bit, that's why. <laughs> oh my gosh. You know what, man? You are never off your game, Joe. And, and and even if you were, none of us would be able to tell. But I appreciate the disclaimer ahead of time. Yeah, of course. And uh, as my cat sits across the room and just stares at me with uh, hugging what looks like my hiking boots. Anyway, um, yeah, she. I feel like she's just becoming a more and more like we talk about. I feel like we talk about the weather every show. I feel like I'm just going to come into every week with just a story mm-hmm. about stupid thing she did. I mean, she's almost like the third member of this podcast, and I, and I I'm kind of liking it. I can't complain. Um, something I, I will run by, I guess, a, a random tidbit of my uh, existence. So, uh, for those of you listening, I do not have any kids. Why did I feel the need to make that disclaimer ahead of time? I don't know, but I don't have any kids. However, um, my uh, my neighbor in my townhouse does, and uh, from time to time they play outside. So I happen to, you know, normally if I'm going outside, I'll throw some shoes, you know, flip flops or whatever. But I happen to just be running outside early in the morning with no shoes on. And um, I felt the pain that I've heard many parents talk about, but I've never had any hope to uh, experience. And I did. I stepped on a Lego and that thing hurt like hell. Um, <laughs> I, I let out a scream and probably a few non-kosher words for all the kids who were catching the school bus that morning. So, uh, yeah, man, uh, I, I guess I, that's my, I think it came to mind because you mentioned stepping in cat poop. So, uh, I stepped on a Lego and yeah, it wasn't fun. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. That hurts like hell. Didn't you mention to me one time, like people have like come up to you in like grocery stores or something thinking you're somebody else and like asking how your kids are. It, it's, it's happened multiple times and I, I'm wondering who these kids are that look like me who I am that I'm that I resemble people who have kids fathers you know so yes it's happened to me at least a handful of times and not just like recently like from the time I was of college age to be like doing my own grocery shopping it's happened and it's it's worrisome <laughs> sounds like you got some phone calls to make when we get off here <laughs> mom I have zero kids that I know <laughs> uh that's really funny um before we get too off the rails we can uh we can talk about some football I guess uh, earlier last week, Athlon Sports put out their uh, updated list of ranking every coaching job in uh, college football and uh, you know, basically just kind of ranking every job of the 130 that are out there in terms of like how appealing they are to uh, potential coaching candidates based on you know facilities, recruiting, resources, that kind of thing. And um, We'll just start by kind of running through where all the Conference USA teams fall on that list. Uh, Rice at 124, UTEP at 119, Western Kentucky at uh, 114, Old Dominion at 113, UTSA at 112, Charlotte at 110, FIU at 109, uh, UAB at 106, 
Uh, North Texas at 90. And then Southern Miss at 85. FAU at 84. Louisiana Tech at 83. And uh, Marshall leading the pack at 78. Um, I think what was interesting to me about a lot of these is how close I feel like a lot of CUSA was like clustered together. Um, but mainly I think like, I feel like most of the league was a little bit lower than I feel like they should have been, but especially kind of the top, the top ones, I feel like you could have made the case that like two or three of the ones that were in, you know, below the 100 mark should have at least been above that. But what's kind of your early reaction to uh, where the conference USA teams lands on that list? I'm going to take the opposite approach. And as you said that, um, I'm going to pull up that list to get the full listing one through one twenty something. What I did was I, I looked at the way they ranked them amongst conference USA teams. And I guess my initial first reaction probably bias somewhat as UDD's FIU beat writer was the distinction between FIU and FAU only because of the the reasoning that they use. Now, I don't have an issue if you want to make the distinction between them. Um, And I don't know if if you happen to see the list as well that ranks uh, all the CUSA teams, but they have FIU ranked eighth, which, okay, I mean, fair enough. Um, And then they have FAU ranked third. Now, I'm just going to read off the little blurb and you tell me your reaction and I'll I'll just kind of, you know, counter that. Uh, FAU third. This ranking is based as much on potential, and I'll read it for those of you listening as well, uh, who may not have the article in front of you. This ranking is based as much on potential as anything else because FAU has had only four winning seasons since its first full season in FBS 2004 and only one since joining CUSA in 2013. That potential is directly tied to the school's location in talent-rich South Florida. That third on the list. Now I'm going to scroll up here to FIU. FIU's location in South Florida gives the program great access to players, but there's lack of tradition and not much interest locally in the program. The Panthers broke through with a school record nine wins last fall, yet averaged only 15,685 fans per game. Um, I'm going to tell you my thought really quick, and I'll, I'll just let you kind of process that. Go for it. I, it, it. To me, you can't have one ranked third and one ranked eighth for that reasoning, because you're essentially – saying that what both programs have going for each other is the location in South Florida and players. (laughs) Um, And then to say that, you know, there's a lack of tradition in the program, both schools have have been there. I believe in my memory, certainly correct. They're a year apart in terms of um, fielding football programs, not much interest locally in the program. Uh, I don't have the number directly in front of me, but FAU didn't exactly average, you know, 60,000 fans in their stadium. And for those FAU fans, listen, I know FAU Stadium only seats about 35,000, so don't jump down my throat on that one. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, it just seems to me as if if you're going to have that type of differentiation between the two, you, you can't if your reasoning for both for, – for, your reasoning for FAU being third is the location and recruiting. And then your reasoning for FAU being – for FIU being eighth is lack of tradition and no fan support. That, that just seems a little uh, a little hypocritical. Yeah, that was kind of my initial reaction as well. They had a lot of the same reasoning for both, but they're pretty far apart. And like, you know, I feel like you you just have to give it to uh I feel like part of that just has to go to like the fact that how FAU has has marketed themselves in the past like year or so, I guess. You know what I mean? Like sure. I guess that I guess that kind of influenced the way whoever made this list was thinking, I guess, because you look at you know, just the stuff that like Kiffin himself was putting out there. It's a lot about, you know, the beach and the atmosphere and what have you. And while they're in drastically different places, it seems like the approach on FIU side has been a little different. Not that there's anything wrong with either approach, but I feel like if you're kind of talking about like the attractiveness of both positions, then I, I guess that's why they did it. But yeah, I agree with you in that. It's strange that these two teams are so far apart in that list, but they both seem to have a lot of the same things going for them in theory. Yeah, and I, like I said, I'm, I'm not going to harp directly on those two teams who, of course, and listen to this podcast. You know, you hear me talk about FIU plenty. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's I think you kind of nailed it right there. Um, FIU within the past uh, few years has really started to pick up their marketing somewhat. Um, I think as as um, the new um, athletics administration gets into place and whatnot, 
as far as social media and things of that nature, they'll get better and they're doing a, a better job, as I said, than, than recent. But yeah, I think essentially because Lane is more of a marketer than Butch, um, that helps as well in the, the, you know, winning in paradise and the fact that they had the, the 10 win season, you know, um, before, uh, FIU did, and they had a guy like Devin Singletary, who was a nationally known player, all those things play into the public perception of the school. Um, and just really quick, you know, to prove that I'm not, you know, biased in any way, uh, when they say the Panthers average 15,695 fans per game, uh, that's true based on paid attendance. Uh, the Panthers probably averaged 5,000 fans per game. So, I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm not sitting here saying that that the reasoning is is incorrect in that regard. I just felt that the the reasoning, uh, you can't rank one-third and rank one-eighth based on that reasoning. Um, but to move away from the Florida teams in Conference USA, uh, UAB 7 was a little bit surprising uh, as, you know, they have them as a coaching job behind MTSU, behind North Texas. Uh, mainly behind Louisiana Tech and Southern Miss, that surprised me. Um, I, I just felt that UAB, you know, kind of being in that Atlanta kind of area, and of course, I mean, they're coming off winning a conference championship. Um, that helps as well. So I was a little surprised that they were ranked seventh among the teams. Uh, and and the other surprise was Tech. Um, Southern Miss, I, I just think, sure, they have a great winning tradition, um, and I'm not going to you know, take that away from them. So I think that kind of lands in the top five overall. But in comparison to an FAU, an FIU, or even um, an MTSU, I, I don't, I don't think they're significantly better. But Louisiana Tech, I, I hope I'm not bashing Rustin by any stretch. Um, but I just don't think that is the most desirable of places, even if you're a coach. Now, with that being said, Louisiana has great talent, and obviously. Uh, the Bulldogs have been a successful program, but I just I just wouldn't put them too above FAU, um, UAB. Uh, that kind of struck me. But Marshall being number one, don't hate it, but I don't. I mean, excuse me, don't love it, but I don't hate it either. Um, they the thing that Marshall has that a lot of CUSA teams cannot boast is not only is their interest in the program, but they've backed it up in terms of attendance. And there is a steady since, you know, the Randy Moss, Chad Pennington days, and, and probably even before that, you know, we can go back to the plane crash and things of that nature. Um, mm -hmm. There is a steady support in Huntington, West Virginia for that program that I don't think any other CUSA team can probably boast. And that alone should probably land them uh, in first. So I don't have an issue with that. Yeah, I mean, it seems like the two big things that Marshall has going for it in terms of how Athlon lays it out is attendance, which sure, that's a big part of it, and uh, winning tradition. And yeah, Marshall's won a lot of games and deserve to be praised for that, but I feel like you can't... It, that concept of winning tradition, I feel like is going to change based on whoever's the coach. So I feel like you can't factor that into a, like a coaching job too much, if that makes sense. And that's kind of the the problem that I have with Louisiana Tech being so high too, is yeah, Skip Holtz has done a great job, but I don't see how that, you know, factors in too much to like how it's perceived as like a top, you know, location for, you know, as far as like how potential coaches are considering where they might want to go next or that kind of thing. You know what I mean? So that them giving that reason for the top two programs is is interesting to me. Um, but yeah, Marshall has the fan support, but I, I don't know how, how much they differ from some of the other teams on this list in terms of resources and just overall, you know, funds to spend on a head coach and other things like that, that would make that an attractive job for potential head coaches. Um, so before yeah. we before we move on, I just want to run this by you to kind of get your POV. I'm just curious how you view attractiveness as a head coaching um, a vacancy and opportunity. Because I know for me, and maybe this is you know probably giving a little insight to me as a person, mm -hmm. uh, I'm willing to buy low on the ground floor if I see the potential. Um, for those of you who maybe of the female gender are single, this is podcast noted. Um, I, I look if I can see that that the job has potential like an FAU, an FIU, um, a UAB, you know, being uh, 
uh, in that Atlanta area and getting a new stadium. I just as a coach, I think I would be a little more. Uh, I, I would buy. I, I, that means more to me, more so than the fan base, right? Because I mean, if you win, the fans will come. Um, that's that's a that's a given. Like, I'll use my alma mater as an example, UCF. They had plenty of winning seasons with George O'Leary, and you know the fan support essentially came. But now you have Josh Heupel and um, Scott Frost. Excuse me, I had a brain fart there. Who've been able to like see all the potential in terms of location and marketing and having a stadium and all those little things put together and take it to the next level. So I think that kind of means more to me than just all right. Fans care about this team. Like you would hope that fans care about the team, and if you win they'll come. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, given how on uh, one of the more recent episodes, we kind of hated on bachelorette parties. I don't know how high our, uh, our <laughs> the women who listen to us is at this point, but um, yeah, I, I kind of agree with you in that fan support, at least initially isn't, wouldn't be that big of a thing for me in theory. I think I feel like I'd be attracted to a potential like you talked about, but also the concept of being in like a low pressure or low stakes environment. And I feel like that's part of the reason why like Kiffin, for example, has had the success he's had. There there really weren't any expectations for that football program before he got there. And I feel like that's part of the reason why he was, you know, he's, he was able to have the success he had in that first season. Um, so I think that that would be kind of a big thing for me, just the combination of like, you know, room for growth, which I guess kind of goes hand in hand with being, you know, low pressure, at least out the gate. And then of course, it's always nice to, you know, walk into a situation where you have decent resources and um, recruiting stuff is kind of less important to me because I feel like you can kind of recruit well, you know, you can recruit well, despite the location of your school, if that makes sense. Like one of my problems with their reasoning for Western Kentucky being 114 is uh, they kind of criticize the overall recruiting, just, I guess the level of talent that's in the immediate vicinity of Bowling Green, Kentucky. And I'm not going to argue with that too much, but if you look at like where a lot of their better players have come from, it's, you know, it's Florida, it's Georgia, it's uh, the Louisville area in some cases. So, and you know, you have some Texas guys in there, here and there. So like, I don't feel like where you are in terms of like fertile recruiting ground or whatever matters that much because based on where your coaching staff has connections, you can recruit wherever. No, um, like I said, you know, we'll move on after this, but I'm really glad you made that point. And just to kind of sum it up, um, I was looking at this because uh, we talked about, or excuse me, we're going to be talking about Furman Silva's transfer in a second. Mm-hmm. Um, but Marshall had, uh, at the end of last year, 32 players in the state of Florida. Uh, Huntington, West Virginia is not exactly close to, to the Sunshine State. So right. like you said, if, if you have a connection on your staff, who can get there. And furthermore, it's not 1970 anymore. You know, you don't have to, uh, you're not driving to your high school down the road and calling the coach and saying, hey, who you got down there who looks like it's a formidable prospect. You can go, you know, online, you have huddle, you know, with social media nowadays, it's much easier to find the talent. So I don't necessarily think that while it helps, you know, if you're an FIU or, or, or a team in Florida who can make the distance, the drive a little bit shorter, um, you don't have to be in that general vicinity to, to find talent. So we, we agree there. Yeah, yeah. As uh, as the world changes, you have a bigger reach with your program via the internet and all that stuff. Before we resume our Conference USA football discussion, we're going to take some time to tell you a little bit more about our sponsors and shout out some of the other great podcasts on the SB Nation Network. Be right back. Um, so good discussion there. We'll go ahead and move on then to talk about the quarterback situations around the league. Uh, our own Cyrus Smith wrote a good little article on the site a couple of days ago talking about um, just who is really in the best shape in terms of their QB room um, when you look at the Conference USA teams. And just to kind of a quick overview of what he said, uh, the top team in the league right now, 
in that category is North Texas, of course, with, uh, you know, Mason Fine coming back, all-time leader in passing yards uh, at UNT, as well as with single-season passing yards and passing touchdowns, two-time Conference USA Offensive Player of the Year. Um, can't really go wrong with him at this point. And uh, in good shape, you got FIU, Louisiana Tech, UAB, Marshall, and Southern Miss in the we'll see category, which is there's potential, but also some, you know, significant downside that could happen there. Um, you got Charlotte and Old Dominion and Western Kentucky, uh, along with FAU, UTEP, Middle Tennessee, Rice, and UTSA. So, I, I mean, just off the top, I think we're both in agreement that North Texas is probably the only team that deserves to be in the great shape category, right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah, obviously Mason Fine has, you know, far exceeded any expectations I had for him coming into his college career. So good for him, and we'll probably see one more real good year from him before he goes on to the NFL or does whatever he wants to do with his life. Um, as far as the the good shape teams, I agree that FIU's got something something good in James Morgan for at least one more year. I've I've always been a pretty big Jamar Smith fan at Louisiana Tech, so I think he's good. Um, with UAB, I'm cautiously optimistic about Tyler Johnson. Obviously, had some good games last year, but you know, don't expect anything of like superstar quality from him. Kind of feel the same way about uh, Isaiah Green from his body work at Marshall, Southern Miss. Yeah, you know, I think there's definitely some good potential in there with uh jack abraham and i believe they i'm feel bad because i'm blanking on his name now but didn't they just bring in a uh like a recruit who had like p5 offers who has the potential to kind of make a difference right away um i am blanking on that as well we'll have to go back and and run through that as we run through this list because i the main guy i had in through my notes was jack abraham Okay, I'll I'll look that up real quick. But uh, what are your kind of your thoughts on the teams that uh, Cyrus classifies as being in good shape here? Sure. So the first thing, and I should have asked Cyrus this before we came on the podcast, was if these if his list is in order. Um, I, I only say that because uh, once again, Mason Fine clearly you know the cream of the crop. James Morgan, you know, on 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 his own uh, stats. You could make the argument if you wanted to that he'd be in, that he'd be among the great uh, category, but the thing is, Mason Fine just been doing it much longer, and I think he deserves that credit as well as for those of you listening. I think some people who um, saw this list, at least from the FIU um, fan base, didn't know that this list is taking into account the entire quarterback room, and Case and Martin has seen more snaps than both Caleb Lynham and Caleb. Wiggins, who haven't seen any uh, snaps as a college quarterback, so take that into account. But what really stood out to me was, uh, and that's why I wanted to know if this was in order, Tyler Johnson the third over Isaiah Green. Uh, they have UAB four, he has UAB four, Marshall five. That was interesting. We all have our guys who were kind of all bought it on, and I am all in on Isaiah Green. I think he's going to be a really talented quarterback. He's got battled injuries, but was a redshirt freshman and still put up really, really solid numbers. And I know you can say part of that was he had Tyree Brady, but um, I just think he has – some guys are just gamers, and I think he's one of those. But to have Tyler Johnson over him was a little questionable because I think – I almost want to say he's in the Will C category, but you haven't seen what he can do for an entire year. And we have a bigger body of work from Isaiah Green, so that stood out to me. Uh, you and I are both believers in Jamar Smith. It's just a matter of him taking it to the next level. Um, but once again, and I don't want to question Cyrus's reasoning because Smith is, has more experience than Isaiah Green, but uh, Jamar Smith has had a lot of talent around him. So to kind of put him three and then go with Isaiah Green five and say uh, that Green had Tyree Brady, you can kind of make the same argument for Jamar Smith as well. And then both of us are kind of, we both sound a little iffy on Jack Abraham. So it, not iffy in that we think he's a solid player, but I don't know if I'd put him in the good category just yet, but the guy did complete, you know, 73% of his passes, which uh, as Cyrus notes is the highest in the nation amongst FBS quarterbacks. So, you know, Hey, if you're completing passes, you're doing your job. So I, I guess by virtue of that, he probably probably belongs in the good category. Yeah. I think my only, uh, my thought on Southern Miss was not necessarily that Jack Abraham isn't, 
talented. It's the fact that I think there are just several guys in that room who could realistically contend for that uh for that job a you have jack abraham of course uh tate watley if he can stay healthy he kind of had some some good plays uh as kind of a dual threat guy um funnily enough out of uh out of lakeland which we've seen plenty of good quarterbacks out of that part of florida um but i think he can contend for the starting job as well and then um the recruit i was talking about was Jaden johnson out of uh the memphis area Um, yeah 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 got got some rave reviews coming out of high school so always uh should be interesting to see what kind of mark he can make but um like a lot of teams they have a really crowded qb room so and uh with several of those guys being in serious contention for the starting job so it's not that i think like jack abraham's a bad player a bad athlete i just think i'm less certain on who's actually going to win that job um than I am for a lot of the other teams in that category, if that makes sense. No, you and I are both in agreement there. So, you know, that, that based on that reasoning, that's what we're both in agreement and um, really quick. And this is, once again, this isn't going to take anything away from Jack Abraham, but David Shanley com- completed, uh, David Shanley at Western Kentucky completed about 68% of his passes. Um, it, it doesn't mean, you know, that anyone can do that. You know, you'd like to see a lot of quarterbacks complete above 60, 65% of their balls. It's just saying that a lot of that is dependent upon the offense and the way you're moving the ball. So, um, yeah, just because uh, Jack Abraham led uh, the nation in conclusion percentage doesn't necessarily mean that he's the foregone conclusion as a starter because um, with a lot, with that 73.1% completion percentage, only came 15 touchdowns. And if my memory serves it correct, I want to say he threw for about 2,300 yards. So it wasn't like the ball being pushed down the field. And uh, when you got a guy like Quez Watkins, you'd like to see that as well. So. Yeah, um, I think, well, to be fair, with David Shanley, he was running for his life for most of the season with uh, Correct. that offensive line needing some some big improvements the last two years or so. Um, but yeah, I guess ultimately, I probably would have put Southern Miss, I probably would have just put Southern Miss in the Wolf C category just for the fact that like I think everybody in that category as we move on um, – is kind of in the same boat in terms of not really being sure about who will, you know, ultimately take the reins as the number one guy, at least in my mind. And with that, we'll move on to the people in the Wolves category, which is, sorry, do you have something else to add to that? No, 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 no. I thought you were moving off from the topic. You were going to the Wolves. Okay, perfect. You're going to lead right into it. You're good. Yeah, yeah. So we have uh, Charlotte, who um, should be an interesting situation between uh, Chris Reynolds, um, and then you have uh, Brett Keen coming in from South Florida. Also, um, could be some uh, interesting competition amongst those two. Uh, and then when you throw Evan Sheriffs into the mix, also Old Dominion. Not really sure what's going to happen with them. Uh, if you'll remember, Blake Larusa left to uh, pursue another career. Um, so we'll see what happens with them. And of course, you got the uh, the former like youngest quarterback, youngest starting quarterback in football, or something like that, with Stephen Williams. Um, and they signed two Juco guys. So should be an interesting QB competition there. Uh, WKU, you got David Shanley and Steven Duncan in there also. Um, and then you also have, uh, Ty story. Who's a, a transfer from Arkansas in there along with, uh, Kivaris Thomas, who, uh, ultimately probably the best athlete out of that group, but we just haven't really seen a lot of him as far as what he can do as a quarterback at the college level yet. And then FAU, we, we've talked a lot about what's going on there with uh, Chris Robinson having some issues. And then, uh, you know, Nick Tronti and Justin Agner basically kind of fighting for, like, who can shine the most in his absence. And then UTEP has Kai Loxley and Brandon Jones going for the starting job. MTSU, uh, it'll pro- let's, I think it'll probably be Asher O'Hara, like, if I had to put money on it. And then Rice has four different guys starting for that job or competing for that starting job, rather. That that seems like kind of a mess. Um, and then UTSA, um, if I had to put money on that, it's pr- I would probably go with the the former LSU guy in uh, Lowell, Lowell Narcisi. But um, I don't know. That's, that's another situation where I feel like you have a bunch of guys in that QB room and none of them really strike me as like starting quarterback. But I don't know. That's kind of my thoughts on on that group. Yeah, once again, nothing that I'm really going to disagree with here. Um, I, I just think there are a lot of guys. 
I think the major takeaway for me is just remembering, damn, there are quite a few QB competitions in CUSA, to be honest, because all of those teams who are in the will see category, um, it's not even just will see based on the talent, like someone needs to break out. It's will see like there are QB competitions all the way across the board. So that was interesting. The question I wanted to ask you was this, um, and I'm spitballing this at you, so, you know, as I normally do, so I apologize. But from that list, who would you say is one or two guys, or let's just say, you know, one, if, if you don't have a second, um, who you think would really break out or have the potential to break out this season into that good category? Um, and since I asked you the question, I'll at least have an answer so I can give you a little time to think. Uh, for me, Chris Reynolds, I thought he was showing flashes before the ankle injury. Now, a lot of that is going to be dependent upon Benny LeMay, uh, because when you have a, such a, a talented running back like him, it's going to take pressure off of your quarterback. But also, he has Victor Tucker, who, if you remember, for those of you listening, uh, was in my uh, under-the-radar conference USA players. I think he uh, had 713 yards last season. I think that you can say he either is due for a breakout season or broke out last year and is going to jump into that next category. I honestly think he's a top five, maybe even top three receiver in the league right now. That's a great weapon to have. So I would go with Chris Reynolds. Uh, the second guy, um, and I guess I'll, I'll give a third, the second guy would be Brett Keane. So I guess I should say the winner of that Charlotte job for all the same reasons. Uh, Keane can move a little bit better than Chris Reynolds, not that Chris can't. Uh, Chris, Chris is a smaller quarterback. He's about 5'10", 190 pounds, which is part of the reason he's playing at Charlotte, and Brett Keane's a little bit bigger. But Keane has legs, and I, and I think that will help him. Uh, so then, you know, outside of the Charlotte job, uh, I'm kind of buying in on Davis Shanley. I think Western last year was a team that they didn't win early. They kind of had the debacle at Wisconsin. And I, I vividly remember, you know, some of the questionable play calls um, there that, that happened by Mike Sanford and uh, that kind of put his team in a hole. And then from there, it's as if they kind of never recovered, you know, they were in games, they were close and then they lost uh and, and the season kind of just kind of snowballed from there. But I genuinely think they're a better team than – I don't want to say a better team than their record show because you are who you are and you play who you play. But it wouldn't shock me if Western won six games coming up next season. And I think Davis Shanley could be a big part of that. So personally, I, I like his guts. I mean, I saw him against FIU. Uh, kid was knocked out with a concussion, but he's a gamer. Another guy who's a competitor, very accurate with the ball. I mean, he put the ball where it needed to be uh, in the FIU game. Uh, some of his receivers let him down. But, yeah, I just think there's there's enough talent. And also, I, I like the running back situation there. I like Josh Samuel. I like uh, Geno Appleberry. So I think Davis Shanley can be a guy who could break out. Yeah. Um, first off, I'll agree with you on uh, Chris Reynolds. I think if he hadn't gotten hurt, then we might have seen Charlotte progress a little bit more than they than they did, and they progressed quite a bit. Um but I'll, I'll agree with you on that. I think of the people mentioned in this whole category, I probably feel the best about him. Um, in terms of any other guy in this list, if I was in Vegas tomorrow, the only guy that I would feel extremely confident in terms of like putting down money that he will be his team's guy on the first Saturday of football season is Asher O'Hara. With all these other teams, I feel like it's too close to call, honestly. Um, just my opinion. But I think based on like his, you know, his playing ability and like the other well, his own playing ability, and then when you compare his playing ability to the other guys in his QB room, I think he's got a really good chance to, you know, take the reins there. Um, but to tie it back into WKU then, I I feel like Davis Shanley definitely has a really good chance based on like, you know, the kind of system that they're going to go back to ultimately with, with Tyson Helton now as the head coach. But I also feel like they're going to kind of take at least the first couple of weeks of this year to play with it and see what sticks, especially with, you know, four guys now who could very well be, you know, starting quarterback material. Um, but yeah, no, I agree with you. I think he was a gutsy guy. I think, um, you know, had he had a little bit more support, especially up front last year, then it, we might have been having you know, a different conversation about this position group. But, you know, obviously it didn't happen. But 
Yeah, I would agree. I think Davis Shanley's got a pretty bright future if he if he sticks with it and um, can you know do some things in fall camp to kind of differentiate himself. But I'm not as confident in saying he'll have a breakout year as you seem to be, bud. No, I mean, like I said, I just think I really liked what I saw from him. I think he's a gamer, and it's it's as much dependent upon Davis Shanley as it is that team kind of playing better than they did last year, which I think they will. So um, it's the the proof is kind of there that Mike Sanford and Western just wasn't a good fit. So I think they'll respond well, and, and that's what it is. And and I want to say I do agree with you on Ash O'Hare as well. Um, he he's another guy. Uh, saw him when he was a, a JUCO player up in Rolling Meadows uh, in Illinois, outside of Chicago. Great legs uh, and the team. Once again, he's going to a program that you know is on the right track. So uh, we're in agreement there. Nice. Um, so with that, I guess we can kind of move on to, uh, some other news from throughout the league. Uh, first of all, former FIU defensive lineman Furman Silva announced that, uh, he's making the move to, uh, go play for Marshall, which, uh, you know, Eric, I'll kind of let you spearhead this one since obviously you've been the FIU guy here, uh, for the better part of the last two years. Um, Hey, what, what kind of void does he leave on FIU now that he's, you know, up to uh up to the most northern team in the league here oh joe the Furman silva saga situation has been a really interesting one and kind of bewildering just on the outside or for those on the outside looking in i guess i'm, I'm not quite on the outside <laughs> um to answer your specific question he doesn't necessarily leave a void and it's hard to to say that when you're talking about a guy who heading into last season was uh cusa preseason um, uh, all first team pick, but he doesn't leave a void because he missed nine games last season with a, uh, with an injury and they had a lot of young players step up. And to be completely honest with you, that's part of the reason why he's no longer a Panther is because of the depth in young talent that is there, uh, both at defensive end and at outside linebacker, which is a position that Furman was kind of toying around with playing, uh, as long as, the, as well as the coaching staff kind of toying around and playing him as a guy who could not only, you know, um, have his have his hand in the dirt, but also stand up and play linebacker. So in terms of void, it's not huge. Now I'm going to go ahead and contradict myself by saying that I think Marshall is getting a heck of a player who, if he's healthy, um, I don't want to overstate this and make it seem like it's a, some huge free agent signing, you know, like that Kevin Durant going to Golden State type signing. But um, he's a he's a guy who, Marshall was already solid with um, Ty Tyler and Marquise Crouch, who actually, incidentally enough, was Furman Silva's high school teammate at Miami Central. But they were solid on the D-line. And if they can get a guy, if, like I said, if Furman's healthy and he's that projected first-team all-CUSA player, whether as a stand-up linebacker or a hybrid linebacker D-end, that's a huge pickup for the herd. So it's – it's and, and I'll go into it a little bit more after I let you respond as far as the circumstances surrounding him leaving FIU, but it's not necessarily um, as much of a loss for FIU as much as it is Marshall's game. Sure. Uh, first of all, you mentioning that uh, he's reuniting with uh, an old Miami Central teammate. That just kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier in the show about how you can recruit well anywhere. It doesn't necessarily matter where your school is located geographically. Um, two, you know, you mentioned a lot of the, the drama that's happened at FIU in the past year or so certainly doesn't help our perception as a, an FIU specific podcast, it seems. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I think I agree with you in the fact that I think he adds a lot to, um, Marshall's pass rush attack specifically. And when you talk about FIU's defensive line, I feel like for the past you know, over two years, I feel like that's been the area of that team that we've all been like the most optimistic about. So I, I guess it kind of makes sense when you talk about how this isn't necessarily a huge loss for them, considering the amount of depth they have across that, you know, that frontal attack there. But yeah, no, I kind of get what you're saying. And it's, it's, you know, unfortunate for him that I think he he wasn't able to kind of make the most of his time there due to injuries and, and all that. So, but you know, yeah, I mean, so here's, here's kind of the thing, you know, and you mentioned that the defensive line has been a unit that we've been optimistic about. Now 
the FIU didn't necessarily play well against the run, and they didn't have the most sacks. Uh, I, I I know that they were 12th in Conference USA off the top of my head. I don't have the numbers in terms of sacks off the top of my head. So while it's it's been a unit that we've been optimistic about, they haven't exactly lived up to to you know their top billing. However, the talent is there, and with I think to kind of once again to bring you in, inside, the major thing was that. You have a certain amount of guys. This is only Butch Davis' third season. So you still have kind of that weird scenario where you have Butch's guys versus the players who were brought in by the former coach and Ron Turner. And that's not to say that Butch hasn't, you know, adapted everybody as his own. You can ask uh, Anthony Johnson, who was just in camp with Tampa Bay last week. He'll be, the, you know, some, one of the first, person to, uh, first people to tell you, hey, Butch Davis put us all on an equal playing field and said, just show me what you got. And we'll go from there. But I just think naturally when you bring in your own guys and you're talking about players like Noah Curtis and Kevin Oliver and defensive ends like that, you're going to kind of gravitate towards those guys. And it's not that he didn't see Furman's talent as much as it was. We played this well without you and let's go ahead and kind of nurture the talent we have. And once again, I just think it was a situation where, you know, Furman himself said, Hey, uh, after the injury, after a couple of weeks, he kind of removed himself from the team. Not that there was, you know, a beef. It's just that he kind of fell into a depression about not playing football. Um, that's in my my interview with him on Underdog Dynasty. Um, mm-hmm. he, he kind of fell into a depression about not playing football. And I think it was just when I asked Coach Davis the first spring practice, he said that it was a situation where he could not come back. I don't have 100% confirmation on that because I didn't see anything in the NCAA rules that said, a guy who enters his name in the portal cannot come back, but I absolutely will take coach Davis at his word. I mean, he, he, uh, Butch Davis has always been a straight shooter. And so uh, if he says he couldn't come back, he couldn't come back. I just didn't see anything, you know, written down in stone that, that he couldn't. Um, but yeah, it was just a situation where, where Furman was going to be better off and, you know, the team is gonna be better off um, or we'll see if they're better off without his, his services. But in terms of talent, they have enough guys on that defensive line where they think they'll be in good shape going forward. Yeah, just flashing back to last year, now that you mention it, they definitely had some issues in that front group defending the run, especially. Like, it, it really shone through in, in several of those those close games. Um, and then, of course, you have, the, you know, the game that wasn't close with um, uh, against – they lost 49-14 to and, and Devin Singletary, and that offense had quite the day. Um, but, yeah, hopefully they can, they can get that plugged up and uh, – have some more success, you know, addition by subtraction, so to speak, on, on the FIU side. And then for Marshall, um, seems like they've just had good luck bringing in uh, some strong talent the last couple of years. And hopefully this will be the uh, the next step towards uh, contending for a divisional or a conference title for them. Yeah, and just, you know, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention the stats for those of you who are not familiar with that. You're talking to a guy who his last healthy season, 50 tackles, 14 and a half, tackles for loss in six sacks, uh, career 14 and a half sacks at FIU last season in three games had uh, three tackles for loss and two sacks. And his two sacks came against Miami. You know, it, the game he got hurt in was a two sack performance against Miami. So clearly a talented player they're getting. For sure. Uh, plenty of strong performances from him. Before we resume our Conference USA football discussion, we're going to take some time to tell you a little bit more about our sponsors and shout out some of the other great podcasts on the SB Nation Network. Be right back. Um, and while we're flashing back, I think one of the the topics that uh, you wanted to cover in here while we're just kind of looking back on, on games that we've attended and, and covered and all that, um, one of the things that you asked me earlier that I had to really think about was uh, the best college football game that I've ever personally attended. Um, and I, I don't have a great story about that, but um, I'll, I'll kind of let you go first since you were the, the person to bring up that topic earlier. Yeah, yeah. So to answer that question, I'm going to go with the best I've ever attended and the best I've ever covered. Okay. I was really lucky having attended UCF from 2010 to 2015. So I essentially caught the meat of their ascension into you know the greater national college football relevance when they had Blake Bortles and won the Fiesta Bowl and things of that nature so it's a toss-up between two as far as the best I ever attended uh, the first one would be a UCF Houston game from 2013 and that was actually the game where if you were in the UCF atmosphere you're like okay this team truly has a chance they started the season 
uh, they, they only lost one game, which was to South Carolina, and they lost that game by three points. And that was uh, two weeks after the South Carolina game. It was like, okay, this has the potential to be a special team. But the reason that game stood out to me was because, if my memory serves me correct, it was 28-25. But, I mean, who doesn't love a game where it's last play of the game, you know, six seconds left on the clock, and it comes down to one final pass in the end zone? I remember Houston, uh, former Houston and Michigan quarterback John O'Corn was driving – into the student section at then Bright House Network Stadium. And it was the loudest I've ever heard that stadium. And I remember it was fourth down. Uh, the ball was inside the 20. I want to say about the 18 or 17 yard line. And he's rolling. Might have been a little closer than that, but he was rolling and pressured. And uh, that pass was tipped. And once that pass hit the ground, I mean, I couldn't hear myself think that place erupted. Uh, it just was a surreal feeling not only as a UCF alum or at the time a UCF student, but just as a football fan. I mean, you know, who, that's the kind of situation you live for. You know, whether you have an interest in a game or not, or interest of the, in the teams or not, you love that game that comes down to one final play. The other game that I was privileged enough to attend was a game that was kind of dubbed, um, I believe ESPN dubbed it the best college football game of 2017. Uh, I remember, yeah, 20, yeah, it was the 2017 season, which was the UCF USF game. Uh, once again at UCF, that was the game uh, that just went saw you know teams go back and forth, back and forth, and uh, right after USF had scored to kind of bring it within three and you know kind of hush up the crowd. And of course, you're talking about an intense rivalry in both teams. Uh, that game was essentially for the American Championship and who who would um, proceed to the conference title game. Mike Hughes' kick return, once again. You know, I, I actually remember this. I got into it with a USF fan who uh, was giving us a hard time. And, and when USF uh, scored, I believe it was an 80-yard touchdown to kind of quiet the crowd right when we thought the game was out of reach. Uh, you know, I tried to be cordial. You know, I had egg on my face. I was like, all right, okay, it's still a game. And he kind of, you know, shot me the bird. was like, yeah, shut up. You were talking all that trash a second ago. And then the next play, uh, yeah. current Minnesota Vikings cornerback Mike Hughes took the kick back uh, 100 yards. And once again, the place just erupted and it was official at that point. Like, all right, UCF finally put him away. So those would be the best two that I've attended. And then the best one I've covered, once again, I'm sorry for making this a UCF podcast here, um, but the uh, UCF Memphis game from last year, just because once again, uh, the Knights, and this is regardless of whether, you know, I had any UCF allegiance or not, uh, they were down by 20 something points. I believe they were down by 24 at one point and to kind of storm back. Uh, and, and I think more importantly, it was the emotion of that game because it was the game directly after Mackenzie Milton's injury. Um, that played a huge part into it as well. And I actually covered the UCF-USF game, but that game uh, where he was injured. So I, I would say that probably was the best game that I've covered so far. Uh, once again, the, it being the conference title game, UCF, you know, looking to go undefeated uh, to play in their second straight uh, New Year's Day bowl game, and then the emotion of Mackenzie Milton's injury. So those would be the best three. And I'm sorry for making this, you know, five minutes of uh, of night nostalgia, but that's what I've got. <laughs> no, no worries. Um, it's funny. I think if we're just going based off of like, you know, on the field struggle, I think one of the best games that I ever covered um, was actually a Louisville loss to UCF. And as bummed as I was about the results. Oh, was, you, covered, you covered that game. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. In uh, 2013. And um, I mean, I don't know. That was just a, both of those teams had such like, were in such good shape at the time. Uh, I think UCF won that uh, as I'm pulling it up now, 38 to 35. Yeah. Okay. Um I don't know. That was just kind of one of the first um, games that I, you know, covered as I got started doing this kind of stuff and getting to see, you know, I, it wasn't that was that Bortles was that? Yeah, yeah I, I was going to say, if you need me to fill in any gaps, I can. So that was that was Blake Bortles versus Teddy Bridgewater. Yeah. Uh, Bridgewater campaign for highs and all, all that good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was a great game. Um, and obviously not the result I wanted as a Louisville alumni, but um I don't know. That kind of sticks out because I had a good time covering it. Um, and best game I ever just attended as a fan was probably the year before that when Louisville played Cincinnati at home. Uh, for people that you know are from the area, you'll remember that rivalry as the uh, keg and nails game. And um, Louisville won that game that year, 34 to 31 in overtime. 
And uh, I remember really vividly uh, Cincinnati tied it up late. Uh, their quarterback was Munchie Legault, and he stood on the bench and kind of made some, uh, some motions toward the student section for a prolonged period of time. And uh, meanwhile, behind him, the game was still happening. And then Louisville kicked the game-winning field goal. And we all just kind of like erupted in cheers. And he just got like a weird look on his face and slowly turned around as the ball went through the uprights. And Louisville won the game. So, uh, yeah, that was that's a fun memory. That's probably in terms of like games I've ever, you know, just attended as a fan. That's probably the best one I've seen. So. And, and I feel like all the other games that I like went to growing up uh, had the chance to go to like some Ohio State games, some Notre Dame games. Uh, but here's the thing about those games: all the tickets that are actually affordable are when they play, you know, FCS teams and lower level FBS teams. So obviously, those were usually pretty big wins and not as good on entertainment value for, you know, as far as that goes. But in terms of excitement, that's probably my my number one. I'm I'm gonna fill in uh, a couple gaps there on that that Louisville UCF game because obviously you know uh, I was on the the other side of that game. But quick okay. question, Joe, um, yeah. are I feel this way? And it, it, <laughs> I know you know based on our latest co- uh, college admission scandal, a reason to go to college is not to party and go to tailgate. Sure. Despite uh, both of us having indulged in that, both <laughs> I'm sure quite a bit. But um, are games better? Like as a student, do you do you look back on games as a student of that university a little more fondly than others? Do I look back more fondly on games I attended as a fan? Yeah, correct, correct. As a fan, but you were currently attending the institution at the time. Uh, I mean, yes and no. I kind of like split my time 50-50, I think, in terms of going to games as a fan and going to games like working. Um, right. So, yeah, I, I probably do just because obviously, you know, it's a work day. It's stressful. And then, you know, Saturday for college football for people that, you know, do what we do and uh, all the other jobs that go into making game days happen on college campuses. It's like a 14 hour work day. So like yeah, long days. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So like, you're not even really for a lot of those, like I had to really kind of think because I've been to, you know, however many dozen D1 football games in my life. But like, for a lot of those, I was working. So I'm like, really kind of struggling to remember a lot of them just because like, you know, you know, the kind of zone you go into when you're working, like your, your brain is your, your, your body rather is kind of doing what it needs to do. But you're kind of at a certain point you're putting yourself on autopilot. That's what I feel like I I did for a lot of like, once I got past that early stage in my career, if that makes sense. But no, no, I'm sure, I'm sure you'll agree with this. A lot of people ask me when they talk about covering games, you know, Oh man, that had to have been great. And it is, but what people don't realize is like, as bad as this may sound, the game might be the least memorable part of that day because there's so much of it that, happens like you said they normally are nine ten eleven hour days where the actual game itself kind of flies by but there's so much stuff you know pre-game you're preparing or post-game where the game kind of flies by um, so i'm sure you'll agree with that yeah exactly you were the little things about those work days kind of stick out and it's not necessarily always uh football related just because it's you know like any other job it 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 becomes as fun as it is it's the job and you're not always paying attention to everything that happens on the field because you have stuff to do um so yeah Yeah, really quick story before we run too long just on that ucf louisville game i remember uh so if you remember i don't know if you do or don't but if you remember this louisville had actually jumped out to a pretty sizable lead at halftime i want to say it was about 17 points yeah so what we did is we started a watch party at my house. At the time, I was a sophomore in college. We started a watch party at the house and decided, all right, um, doesn't look like we're going to have, you know, a big UCF win house party. So let's just head out to the local UCF bars, which there are very many of them. Um, and uh, we'll watch the rest of the game there. And then, hey, if they lose, at least we're already out. So we've beaten, like, the crowd to get into the UCF clubs. And then we're already there. And you can make the most of the cheap uh, – cheap, um, 
adult beverages that are that are usually sold there. So yeah. we went out to a little spot, and then of course Yusuf made their comeback. And I remember like it was yesterday, Blake Bortles rolled uh, to the, his right and caught Jeff Godfrey in the uh, corner of the end zone there for a game-winning touchdown. And I, I vividly remember that because the entire place had the same idea that we did, and the place got packed really quickly. And when UCF scored that touchdown, um, they played Zombie Nation over the speakers. What more vividly, what I remember is people throwing, you know, uh, drink napkins and ice into the air, and it was like raining napkins and ice in a weird way that did not like was kind of painful because it was giant ice cubes. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I vividly remember that, but I, I do remember that uh, that game uh, very well. So it's funny that you and I have the same memory on in terms of that one. <laughs> yeah, it was a different atmosphere in Louisville, Kentucky <laughs> that night, let me tell you. Um, yeah, but uh, yeah, still still good memories. Um, before we wrap up, there's one Conference USA-related news uh, tidbit that I feel like we should touch on, and that's that UTSA has uh, just announced a five-game series with the University of Texas, and uh, that should be set to start um, – in 2022, September 17th is going to be the first game of that uh, that series, and then they're going to play every other year until 2030. So five games in all. Um, I think it's a pretty good move for for UTSA um, with you know with obvious benefits like kind of boosting their profile, seeing as uh, you know still kind of a young program, um, just being in their uh, their ninth season here going into their ninth season. So I think that's obviously good that they're able to lock this down. Uh, time will tell if they're able to get to the point where they have any sort of chance against the Texas Longhorns when 2022 comes around. But um, I, I think obviously a step in the right direction for that program. No, once again, you know, we'll agree there. I think the only thing that I noticed that, was a little perplexing is that it is a five game series and all of them are at the university of texas at daryl k royal memorial stadium and that caught me a little off guard because you'd think you'd like to get one of those um in san antonio at the alamo dome so yeah i'm reading it the, the press release you know <laughs> uh, all five contests will be held at daryl k royal texas memorial stadium in austin um I guess I would like to get one of those games at the Alamo Dome in San Antonio. So that's just me. But outside of that, you know, good for the program. So it's going to be great exposure. So, you know, can't beat that. Oh, for sure. And I, I will agree with you in that. I think I would have expected at least one of those to be, if not in the Alamo Dome, in a, uh, you know, like a site or something. Um, I wonder what the difference in seating capacity is for the Alamo Dome compared to Texas's football stadium. So the Alamo Dome is 72,000. Um, let's see, Texas football stadium. Uh, I've got it at 100,119. 100, so okay. about 30,000 30, seats, give or take. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's pretty significant. I don't know. I know P5 programs are always kind of uh, – I mean, for one, they're iffy about traveling anywhere when, they're, when you're talking about games against a G5 opponent. Two, they're going to be iffy if – they don't have a stadium where they feel like they can fit all of their fans, but also like, you know, it's not like they're going to, you know, they're It's not, like they're going to another team within conference USA. That would be a more significant trip. You know what I mean? They're, they're just going, they're just going to San Antonio. That's not too far from where Austin is. So with that being said, you would think they would have at least given UTSA one home game in there, but yeah, just, just as you mentioned on the phone, I said, you know, the quick notes, um, it's an hour and a half ride from the Alamo Dome to Austin. And, I mean, you also got to think of it like this. I mean, Texas is, is you know, that's – University of Texas fans are going to be found all throughout the state. So it's not like that would be a, a road game, quote-unquote, for them. And then also, uh, I think it would give UTSA the opportunity to make the most of the Alamo Dome because I don't think they open up all 70,000 seats for UTSA games as well. So they take the loss there. But, you know, like you said um, – in the greater scheme of things, as far as getting the matchup with University of Texas, it's a, it's a good thing. For sure. And also, you'd think that it's not unreasonable to think, rather, that Texas would have all the bargaining chips going into this conversation. I'm sure they had you know, <laughs> certain things like, here's what we'd like. And then Texas says, that's nice. Here's what we're going to do if you want to. <laughs> so, 
exactly. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's what the negotiation sounded like right there. Right. Had no, had no idea you were there, Joe. <laughs> I mean, I'm basically, I'm, I'm everywhere all at once as, uh, as I kind of have to be anywhere to get away from, uh, from my very loud cat at this point. Um, <laughs> Uh, with that, we'll go ahead and wrap this episode of the show up. Hope you had some fun kind of reminiscing on uh, your favorite college football games with us and talking about all of the latest happenings around Conference USA. Uh, if you want to follow us on Twitter, I'm at J-O-E-H-I-O underscore. Eric is at Eric C. Henry underscore. And of course, follow at Underdog Dynasty also and like Underdog Dynasty on Facebook and follow underdogdynasty.com every single day for more G5 football stuff throughout the year. Um, with that, we will say have a great rest of your week. Happy football watching, and uh, take it easy. Take it easy.